This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane and... Today, our guest is Charles Steinberg, or should I, I should say Dr. Charles Steinberg. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, I am fighting a cold, and if I hack up a lung during this uh, intro, I apologize. Um, Dr. Charles was kind enough to be my first ever interview. So I had this idea in May of 2019. In June, I had at least all my stuff together to have an interview and this is actually even before chris came on board so this was just mine and i've been holding on to this one mainly because i don't know it was the first one and it wasn't something that i don't know that turned out what i thought all that great not because anything charles did but because i was very self-critical of it but we i said you know what screw it we're we um we we put all our stuff out here and uh wanted you guys to hear literally the first ever interview this was done at uh mccoy stadium uh in charles's office uh, before slash during a game uh it's a long one and charles has a very interesting story a uh, great great stories charles is an a plus storyteller um i wouldn't describe charles as succinct <laughs> um but he is an A-plus storyteller, and his story about how he got into the um, into the sports industry uh, as and uh, the story he tells about why they call him Dr. Charles Steinberg, and uh, from uh, a great, great story. Listen, it's down a little bit, uh, but listen um, on when the story about when David Ortiz come out after the marathon bombing and goes, <clears throat> excuse me. This is our fucking city. And uh, Charles tells the story about how that all came to fruition. Just uh, really, really great stuff. A great story from Charles. And appreciate everyone who's been listening. And uh, if I thought about this, I would have had the Dr. Charles one when our audience was a lot smaller. uh, And not as many people would kind of hear uh, this, but it, sound quality and everything is good. I just am a little self-critical to, uh, on this interview, but no matter what, Charles is great, uh, and I will think that you will enjoy uh, his story. He's he's awesome. So, uh, without further ado, the president of the Pawtucket slash Worcester Red Sox, Doctor Charles Steinberg. Hello, you are listening to Front Office Features with Rob Crane, and today our guest is Dr. Charles Steinberg. Charles was is the current president of the uh, Pawtucket Red Sox, former EVP of the Boston Red Sox, I think chief marketing officer, 
of the Los Angeles Dodgers, mm-hmm. uh, and also worked on uh, the Commissioner Bud Selig's book. I'm not sure your exact title there, uh, but I'm sure it was very lofty. So, uh, Dr. Charles, welcome to Front Office Features. Well, thank you. Happy to be on FOF. FOF, right? That's our, our little tag name. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's wonderful. So, tell me, why do they call you Dr. Charles? It's one of the nicer things they call me. <laughs> I can imagine. It is an unusual path, I fully admit, to be in my 44th year of baseball and to be a dentist. I almost had you. I only had you at 45 years old. Well, that that would have been I started at a very <laughs> young age. The truth is I did start at age 17 uh, as an intern um, with the Baltimore Orioles. I'm a Baltimore native and was blessed to get a one-month non-paid internship the last month of senior year at Gilman School in Baltimore. I never thought I could have such a dream come true job for a month, and I certainly never thought it would last 44 years. So because I knew nothing, I thought I better still be pursuing a normal career and... um, that led me into the world of dentistry, and so my doctorate is in dentistry, and um, I was the team dentist, but that's another story. We got plenty of time for stories today. So one of the things that I found interesting was you started out as a high school intern and with the Orioles. Tell us about that. You, it was a pretty interesting way that you got that. In the last month of senior year, The school knew, it was a college preparatory school, it was a great, great school, best school in Baltimore. The school knew that back then, come April 15th, you had gotten your acceptance or rejection letters to your colleges. And presuming you got an acceptance somewhere, you now knew where you were going. And to combat the proverbial senior slump, they thought, Instead of playing out the string the last five or six weeks of school, uh, better get some real-world experience. Now, the word internship wasn't yet in our vocabulary there then. Uh, So what actually they called it was um, Project Encounter. Project Encounter. Encounter. Okay. And what are you going to do for your encounter project? And the school suggested that you think of something you wanted to do when college was over. Or think of something you'll never have the chance to do again. Now, grew up in a nice, normal, middle-class household in in Baltimore. And my parents, a a blessed memory, are gone now. But my dad was an orthodontist. And I thought, I'll do something adventurous. I'll work for another dentist, a friend of my dad's. (laughs) I I thought I was branching out. You are branching out right there. So I was going to work for... Dr. Buddy Blumenthal, may he rest in peace. He was my pediatric dentist and a friend of my dad's. And he had a gorgeous office. Um, And and baseball players went there and took their kids there. I met L. Rod Hendricks there when when I was about 12 years old. And he was a longtime Oriole and probably signed almost as many autographs in Baltimore as Brooks Robinson. So that's what I was going to do. And one day, a buddy of mine walked down the hall in high school and said, Hey, Charlie, I heard they'll let us work for the Orioles. 
Now, we were Oriole nuts, but everybody was an Oriole nut. The Orioles back then were perennial winners, always contenders, finished first or second seemingly every year. And I was as big an Orioles fan as you could be. And I thought, oh my gosh, I never dreamed that you could do that. I've got my whole career ahead of me for dentistry. I've only got one month of my life for baseball. And so I decided to be even more adventurous, um, but to do an adventure that I just didn't know you could dream. You know, when you're a short, fat Jewish kid who gets two hits in two years of Little League. And that's not a, you're not the, uh, exaggerating. You got two hits in Little League, and they both occurred. I'm not exaggerating that was short. That turned that way better. But I did, yeah, I got two hits in two years of Little League. All, all my friends uh, from that team, who we, uh, we've we all reunited on Facebook, they'll all remember. I got zero hits. I had no hits my first year. Um, and I'm not sure I put a ball in play. When I got no hits, it was like, Walk yeah, or strikeout. You got no hits. A walk. A walk was a big deal for me. Um, the second year, in the first exhibition game, uh, I wore glasses, as you might, you know, picture. Just picture, you know, one of those kids out of Bad News Bears or um, or the Sandlot. And I love it. And I'm in right field naturally. That's where they always kept me, unless there was a good left-handed hitter, <laughs> and then they moved me to left field. I loved it. I just wasn't. At all, talented. And a ball comes out to right field, bounces, bounces up and hits me right between the eyes, breaking my plastic glasses in two. <laughs> I wasn't hurt or anything, but I, I wasn't now wearing my glasses. Came up to bat wearing no glasses after wearing glasses that first year of futility. And I can see still... When you only get two hits, you can see them both. <laughs> this ball is a little bit up and away, and I, I took that lumbering swing with my 31-ounce Adirondack bat, and it went into right center field, and it kept going. I mean, the outfielders, if they knew me from the previous year, were probably seated, you know. <laughs> and, and before I knew it, you know, two days later, I pulled up into third base with a triple. That's a triple. A triple that for count, my first counts hit. as almost three. And and um, many many years later, uh, my best friend who played baseball, uh, Hall of Famer Eddie Murray, uh, we were together at the Orioles, and I explained to him that my first hit was a triple. And looking at me, he said, "Charlie, if you hit a triple, that ball really had to be hit." <laughs> <laughs> and my my little league coach uh, came in, uh, came up to me at third base. And shook my hand because he had suffered with my, um, you know, going with no hits that first year. Uh, Coach Mort Halley, may he rest in peace. The next game, so remember, I did that with no glasses. Right. Maybe that was the answer. Maybe that was. Next game, I hit a line drive over the shortstop's head for a single. I mean, it was good. It was like what real baseball players do. (laughs) And I was on top of the world, and you think it's going to last forever, and that wound up being the last hit I ever got. That's so, funny. Uh, so, yeah, I got—I literally got two hits in two years of Little League, and many years later, many years, decades later, we're in San Diego, the birthplace of Ted Williams, and I and he comes home to San Diego in you know late in life, yeah. and I get to meet him, 
and with his John Wayne persona, did you ever play baseball? And I explained sheepishly, yes, I got two hits in two years of Little League. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, and both hits came in the second year. And Ted John Wayne Williams bellows, well, at least you showed improvement. <laughs> so it was an historic conversation between the greatest hitter who ever lived and the worst hitter who ever That's lived. That's funny. That's funny. So, Charles, a lot of the, the main focus of this uh, podcast is really to help um, young folks as they try to enter into the sports industry, as they enter into the beginning parts of their careers. And you've had some interesting people uh, who you helped uh, spring into uh, into stardom, though maybe not uh, exactly the path that you thought. So there's a guy that many people may know, and his name is Theo Epstein. Mm -hmm. Tell uh, tell me about your relationship uh, with Theo and how it all got started. I find it incredibly interesting. I think that if you talk to a baseball scout who discovers a five-tool player, a Hall of Famer, that scout will quickly tell you, don't give me any credit for that. Anybody was going to see that kind of talent. And I feel that way about Theo. Um, this, But what was the circumstance that set the stage is a lesson, particularly for those in elementary school, middle school, high school, and, and even college. And that was uh, this. I was at the Baltimore Orioles. I had been an intern. I had been a perpetual intern while going through college, while going through dental school. And when I graduated from dental school, I became the, the team dentist, but I was able to keep that part-time because the work I had done as an intern was so fun, so fulfilling, that I thought, well, let's just see how far the baseball goes. I still have my whole career for dentistry. And unbeknownst to me, the education that I had received in high school when it came to English, grammar, punctuation, and spelling, the things that so many eighth graders or 10th graders yawn over because, well, that, that won't matter. I've got spell check. Well, no, you don't. You may think you do, but you're wrong. That education played a role, a key role, in the Orioles giving me more and more writing assignments to do. And by this time, Larry Lucchino was the president of the club. Edward Bennett Williams was his mentor, then late mentor. And both were grammarians. Both were accomplished attorneys. Both had made their livings knowing the difference between a semicolon and a comma, knowing that spelling is everything in a legal document, and knowing that grammar, punctuation, and spelling were their oxygen. And I could write well. I never really thought about that. I enjoyed writing, but I never really thought about it. But because I could write well, my writing became an elevator for me at the Orioles. But at the same time, I had to be the resident English teacher 
at the Orioles. For those under me, those around me who weren't as skilled. Um, and so I was, in essence, proofing papers. And it was just the, the incipiency <clears throat> of emails. Um, because if you wrote a memo and it was filled with errors in grammar, punctuation, or spelling... In my opinion, Larry Lucchino, and certainly Edward Bennett Williams, we're going to look at it and you'd be a little diminished in their eyes as far as your educational accomplishment. They weren't going to hand a project to you to write if you couldn't write well. Right. And writing is a key in baseball. So I'm spending a lot of time in 1992... Uh, we're at Camden Yards, um, protecting the staff by making sure their writing is okay. And I always had interns, just as I had been given the gift of an internship, so too did I always make sure I had interns. And I received, um, well, one day, our, our head of, um, actually was called Vice President of Administrative Personnel, walked in. He's a very famous person. Not many heads of administrative personnel are famous. Right. He was. He had been an all-pro NFL star with the Dallas Cowboys and had finished his career with the Washington Redskins, where Larry Lucchino was counsel and Edward Bennett Williams was president. And they knew that this Baltimore native and Yale graduate was a very bright person and he was on the Orioles board of directors and when the 1987 story came out of Al Campanis um, shedding light on the lack of diversity in baseball front offices Edward Bennett Williams and Larry Lucchino on November 10th 1987 made football star Calvin Hill our Vice President of Administrative Personnel. And for those who don't remember Calvin Hill as a player, you may very well know his son, who we used to hear about when he was in eighth grade. Oh, is your son going to play football? Uh, he's kind of like in basketball. Tenth uh, grade. Well, is he going to play football? Well, he's still kind of really gravitating to basketball. Well, where's he going to go to college? Well, Duke is, is really <laughs> interested. And so Grant Hill, wow. who's had quite a career, quite a career. was um, a middle schooler uh, being talked about at Orioles staff meetings uh, back uh, when Calvin Hill, his father, uh, was our vice president of administrative personnel. And Calvin walked in one day in 1992 in March, and he said, um, I saw this resume and it looked pretty interesting. He said, uh, I thought you might be uh, interested in taking a look at it. Um, he said, there's no pressure, but, you know, it looked good. And I read a cover letter, and the writing was just good. And the resume was written well. But it was somebody from Massachusetts. What do they want with the Baltimore Orioles? Called him on the phone said, would you like to come down to Baltimore for an interview? Yes, and I think over spring break, because he was a freshman in college. 
I came in and talked and um, the oral communication skills were as strong as the written communication skills. And the baseball knowledge was sturdy. It was really solid. And um, what ran through my mind was, oh, thank goodness, this is not someone who's right. writing I have to proof. In fact, it's so good, he can help me <laughs> proof. Right. And um, that together with the good baseball knowledge based on uh, being a voracious reader of books um, was, uh, was... Theo loved reading books. I won't say he loved them, but he, he did read them. Oh, he did read well, them. Well, the story was is that uh, he and his twin brother and his sister, Theo explained, were required to read for an hour for every hour of television that they wanted to watch. Being an avid Red Sox fan living in Brookline, Massachusetts, to watch a three-hour Red Sox game, they had to read for three hours. And and their father, who's a, a well, well-respected, well-known professor of creative writing uh, at Boston University, would talk to them about the books. You couldn't... Yeah, you, you couldn't, couldn't fake it. You yeah. couldn't fake it. So um, uh, they would... Theo would read books about baseball. Perhaps his brother and sister did too. I don't remember that. And the more he read about baseball, the more he read about baseball and, and took um, an exceptional interest in Negro League baseball. No kidding. And is a scholar. Outstanding scholar on Negro League history. Uh, and played... A definite role in uh, Leon Day going into the Hall of Fame, so it was um, it was a remarkable um, experience for me to see someone who could write so well, who read so much, who loved baseball with a passion, and whose mind was undeniably exceptional. As I say, any scout would have seen what I saw. There, there was nothing uh, unusual about me. It was. Um, uh, just a, a really uh, exceptional uh, person who walked into my office that day. So Theo Epstein got his start because he was an exceptional writer. Yes. And he stayed in your public affairs, public relations office from Baltimore, and then you took him uh, when you and Larry uh, went to San Diego, and he stayed in your PR marketing area. Is that correct? Yeah, for a, for a while. Um, he In that first year... In 92, uh, yeah, I was answering the phones and uh, in community relations, public relations. Uh, the second and third year, um, uh, more media relations, closer to baseball, closer to baseball information. Uh, then he uh, went with Larry Lucchino and me uh, when we took over the San Diego Padres in 95. And we joke about it uh, still that that first year needed really a, a scoreboard coordinator. And um, and uh, that probably wasn't going to make him closer to baseball, except he did a brilliant, brilliant thing. We wanted to introduce the concept of showing the speed of every pitch on the scoreboard, which had never been done. No, the pitch speed has not been invented. In the, the pitch speed had been invented, <laughs> but uh, and the Houston Astros were showing uh, from time to time or a collection at the end of it back. Got it. But nobody was making it a ritual. Got it. And. Uh, Theo was coordinating our scoreboard crew, um, which, which you know brings back memories. <laughs> and we wanted this radar gun, and we made it so that the speed could go up on the scoreboard, and he was responsible for that. 
I said, who's going to actually, though, sit down there and read the, the, the speed? He said, I'm going to do that myself. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it would have you know someone do it. You're just looking at a red number on a yeah, radar right. gun. But he did that himself, and that was bright. But we then added the type of pitch. Fastball, curveball, changeup, slider, cut fastball. Okay. Um, Getting pretty you know, in-depth about this. Okay. So one day I said to him, how do you know those breaks on the ball? You know, how do you know... A cut slider from a, a cut fastball from a slider, and this may be a paraphrase, but it's close. He said, "Well, each day at uh, three thirty, I meet with each pitching coach and go over uh, what that starting pitcher's repertoire is and what to look for and who's likely to come in from the bullpen." That's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Brilliant. That's brilliant. That's, that's brilliant. So he is standing down there behind home plate, reading pitches knowing what he's looking for, recognizing pitches. And, um, you know, there there have been other interns who come in thinking that they know what position they want. But when you're an intern who comes in and says, I just want to be on the team, and you place them in various positions, and they make something out of it that's better than what you even imagined... Mm-hmm. That's special. That's special. You take someone who needed to make sure that we showed this announcement on the scoreboard at the end of the third inning, but he also winds up standing down behind home plate, recognizing the difference between a cut fastball and a slider. Um, you know, you're you're making the most of an opportunity, and um, again, anyone would have discovered what a, an exceptional mind he has. I was just the lucky one to whom Calvin Hill uh, gave the resume. That's fantastic. Grant Hill's father. Grant and then father. you orchestrated a trade to send him over to the uh, Padres baseball operations side <laughs> yeah. soon after that. Well, I, I didn't get anything in return. <laughs> you didn't get anything in return. Except a big thank you from the late Kevin Towers, right. who we just adored. But um, So on, but that, yeah. on that same vein of... Uh, Theo and him going out and uh, talking to the pitching coaches and knowing what the repertoires are, uh, are from the pitchers. You talk a lot about in our time is you're always being evaluated. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, at your year-end review you're mm-hmm. getting evaluated yeah. or your halfway point you're getting evaluated. Every day you're being evaluated from everybody in the organization. Talk about that a little bit. Starting day one. Right. And you don't know that. When you're 17 years old, or 18 years old, you don't know that you matter. You think that because you are the gum on the bottom of the sole of a shoe of the lowest ranking person, because that's who you're helping, you think, well, they, they don't care about me. And it's just the opposite. It is like scouting players. Do you think that a scout doesn't care about a 16-year-old playing shortstop in in 10th or 11th grade. If that shortstop shows him something that he notices, you bet he does. And I had no idea that front office staff members, marketing, accounting, uh, operations, you name it, anybody is paying such attention to the 
day ones, not just the interns, to the the people who are apparently most peripheral, the people who seem to be the least at the top. Right. And day one is crucial because you are being evaluated, you are being watched because those of us who've been blessed to have careers in baseball are constantly looking for those who have it. Yeah, the people who get it, the people who set themselves above. It's almost like instantly you can be like, that person's going to be a star. And you don't know that you even have that in you normally. Right. For example, there was a a wonderful lady uh, who was the administrator of the Orioles Public Relations Department, Helen Conklin. All the media in Baltimore remember her. Fondly, you know, she yeah. she is no longer with us. May she rest in peace. And um, she looked out for me. She was um, a baseball maternal figure to me. Uh, Bob Brown, who gave me the opportunity, the public relations director, uh, was a father figure, is, is still a father figure. And I owe everything to them. But one day, uh, Helen said to my mom, um, you know, when she came, he has it. He has it. My mother, like, he has what? He has what? Thinking you have, <laughs> does she have a cold? Does he have a flu? Does... <laughs> and, you know, you don't understand foot? what they mean. And she said, he can go all the way. All the way. You're like, what does all the way mean? You know, you just don't know. You think that, that you're aware of predestined limits. And you're not. You know, you, you, there are no predestined limits. And you just keep going. But I think that it's important to know what evaluators are looking for on day one. And um, another um, boss of mine, for a number of years, wound up having a great long career with the Seattle Mariners, Bob Aylward, uh, was, uh, was my boss at one time after nine years with Bob Brown. And he said, you know, think about it, Charles. Think about the people who have integrity, meaning you can trust them, they're reliable, they're going to tell you the truth, they're not going to steal, they're not going to have sticky fingers that are trying to take things with them. Think about the people with integrity. Think about the people who are bright. You don't have to be brilliant. You do have to have common sense. Thank God I'd be out of a job. Well, you you are are brighter than you give yourself credit for, and, and that's one of the reasons, is that you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar, but you do have to be bright. He said, think about the people who have integrity, who are bright, who have a great work ethic. That's being dedicated to your work, diligent in your work, and effective in your work. And who work well with others, who have a collaborative spirit, who are cooperative. He said, those four things sound easy, but look around you. You won't find that many who get A's in all four categories in integrity, intelligence, work ethic, and collaboration. It's a rare combination. It doesn't seem like it would be rare. Because you say to yourself, I'm good at all four of those. Right. But you look around, and the ones who are fallen stars, usually you'll see one or more of those areas are where they come up deficient. And you don't have to be perfect in all of them, but you have to 
you can't fail anymore. You can't fail. You got to. And one of the things that I think that separates uh, young folks and really anybody that's in the in the sports in the sports industry is they have an exceptional knack of saying yes. They are. Uh, you and Larry Lucchino always talk about being in the yes business. And one of the best stories I've ever heard about being in the yes business is about a train conductor whom you met. Tell me about the story right. of the train conductor. Got it. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite things at the Boston Red Sox your EVP of the Boston Red Sox. Executive Vice President for Public Affairs mm-hmm. for many years. In 2004, it's our third year with the Red Sox, we know we've landed in a pressure-filled city and a pressure-filled ballpark. Red Sox haven't won the World Series we in 86 won, years. Right, since 1918. Aaron Boone just hit the home run the year before. Yes, he did in Game 7, You know, puncturing our dreams. Now it's 2004, and one of my favorite things was to make sure I remain a fan. And I would get on a train in a cellar on a Friday afternoon in Boston and go down to New York for Red Sox-Yankees weekend. I have no responsibilities at Yankee Stadium. I'm just a fan watching a rivalry so intense that a spring training game that year was called (laughs) Game (laughs) 8. And I'm on the train, and I pull down the plastic uh, tray that is the back of the seat in front of me, and I take out my work. I've got a Red Sox media guide, a Red Sox this, a Red Sox that. And down the aisle comes the train conductor saying, Tickets! Tickets! And here's an older, curmudgeonly conductor who stops to take my ticket looks at the books on my tray and says what's that and I said what's well, my work he said what do you do and I explained to him now this could go either way this is a train going from Boston to New York he could be a Red Sox fan or you have no idea what side is going on and he looks and says I've been waiting all my life to see them win I won't live to see the day. And with that, he walks off. And you realize that actually went well. Yeah, that was great. That was he, a very friendly, a, very friendly well, way he's a Red guy. Sox fan. Yeah, right? <laughs> he's not a happy Red Sox fan, but at there the time, was no there, wasn't many. <laughs> there wasn't many. Red Sox fan after 86 years of futility. So we had made a promise to our fans who live in what Larry Lucchino called the tip of the spear. Fans who live in New York City or Southern Connecticut. Uh, they're an, uh, an organization of Red Sox fans with the uh, acronym the Blowhards. Benevolent, loyal, order of what? Hardcore, diehard Red Sox fans. Something like that. The loud ones. We promised them that if we ever won the World Series, we would bring the trophy to New York. Well, months later, we won the World Series. And on a dark and cold Friday night, it would be around November 12th, if my memory is right, we get on the train. Now, the trophy is encased in a 
black and silver anvil footlocker. You are not breaking into this trophy. I, the, 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 it's huge. You don't know that there's a trophy. Right. It's just this like big, big giant trunk and we get on the train there's our community relations folks our photographer videographer certainly security people right our fenway ambassadors who are just marvelous and the security guys slide the foot locker you know which is uh, vertical into this exaggeratedly large space behind the last seat that is there for uh stowing extra baggage we fill up the whole thing it fit like a glove. Perfect. Down the aisle walks the conductor. Same guy. The same conductor. And he looks at the security people putting this giant trunk in this space, using it all up, and says, you can't put that there. And then he turns and sees me. He remembers you. There's a moment. And his head flinches back and looks at the case. And he does a double take and looks at me. And he says, is that what I think it is? And I said, it is. And now his face suddenly softens. And he goes, can I see it? I said, you can. And, we and you're go, on the middle of a train. We're on the train. Yeah, right. Going from Boston to New York. We open the case. We take out the trophy. He holds it in his arms, cradling it like a baby. We take a picture of him holding the trophy. We then take pictures of every other passenger on right. the train who wanted to hold it, holding the trophy. That's fine. And I said, would you like to come to opening day next April when we present the rings to our players? And very softly, he said, can I bring my son? I said, sure. And, um, yeah, I guess we took his name and made it happen. All winter long, we took pictures of people holding the trophy. You know, do not touch. No, we say do touch. That thing had a lot of fingerprints and got bent. So for the first edition of Red Sox Magazine in April of 05, mm -hmm. we made the cover this montage of all these pictures of people holding the trophy. And I made sure that my friend, the conductor, had his picture holding the trophy on there. A year and a half later, I close on the purchase of a home. And my next door neighbors, new to me, yeah. invite me to a bonfire. You live on, happy. it's on the, it's, yeah, on, it's the beach. A, on the beach, gorgeous place. And I attend it, and they've got their own stories that are giving me the chills. And after they tell me their stories, this older gentleman comes over and says, um, I wanted to meet you, uh, and my next door neighbors are the Clancy's from Quincy. Clancy's from Quincy, uh, classic Quincy. Yeah. yeah, I said, are you a Clancy from Quincy? He goes, no, I'm a Cohen from Randolph. <laughs> well, okay. All right. A Steinberg recognizes a Cohen. But I wasn't expecting that. I said, why? And he said, you earned a good name in our community. I said, why is that? He said, because we were friends with Larry Solomon. And I'm thinking to myself, Larry Solomon, Larry Solomon. You, know, you meet a lot of people. And after a pregnant pause, he goes, the train conductor. Oh, 
And I said, no. He said, we all know the story. He said, but you don't know the story. He said, we know what you did. He said, but you don't know what you did. I said, what do you mean? He said, when he met you, he told you that he thought he would never live to see the day. That's because he had leukemia and he knew he didn't have long to live. But he did see them win the World Series. And he went to opening day with his son, thanks to you, the next year and saw that picture on the Saw the picture the on, the, on the magazine. That's him. He said, and he passed away later. He said, but we all know what you did for him. And it's just a reminder. Gives you the chills. Yeah. Gives you the chills. Yeah. And, you know, it is the power of yes. Because all you had to do was say, if you could have easily said, nope, sorry, the trophy's in the cabinet. Uh, I'll see you later. Let me get back to my work. And the Red Sox had plenty of people who, for decades before, were very, very nice about telling you why they couldn't do things. Oh, I'm sorry. I would love to. You know, because... It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot right. of work to say yes. Yes carries with it a train behind a locomotive of responsibility. Nice pun no. for the conductor story, by the way. Well, well that's, that's <laughs> subconscious. You know, no is the end of the story. Right. Yes has a lot of work. But Larry Lucchino's career and my career and the intertwining of those are filled with chills-inspiring stories of the power of yes. And power. that's why Larry says we're in the yes business. We are. That's uh, one, of the, uh, one of the great things. Is all, there's no real hurt in saying yes. You can always figure it out. And the uh, things that you're able to bring to them uh, are just incredible when you actually say yes. You want, you want a precursor to that? I would love a precursor to that. I don't want you to think that Larry and I invented the concept of of the yes business, or that we think we did. You're growing up in Baltimore. You're just a kid. You love Brooks Robinson. You love the Baltimore Orioles. I'm in 10th grade. Not yet with your high school internship. No, I'm just a kid like anybody else in Baltimore loving loving the Orioles. And I must go to back to school night when they're giving away Orioles book covers. Got to get one. In September. Got to. We've got books. Remember, at this private school, you had to buy your books. And it was the thing to put book covers on them. Mm -hmm. So on that September night, that was back to school night, book cover night. Yeah. I couldn't go. It was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And my mom said, no, you're not going on Rosh Hashanah. And you're missing book cover night. Whoa. As a 10th grader, that's like crushing. Crushing. Can't miss the book cover night. Rosh Hashanah, though. My face was probably longer than I was tall. (laughs) And my mother said, well, why don't you call the Baltimore Orioles and explain to them that it's Rosh Hashanah and maybe they'll send you book covers. Okay, first of all, that's outlandish. (laughs) Second of all, how do you call the Baltimore Orioles? How do you call the Baltimore Orioles? Well, Uh, she took out the white pages with me and you looked up Baltimore or heels two four three nine eight hundred, and with the rotary phone, I dialed the seven numbers, got a switchboard operator, Baltimore Orioles told the story. Hold on, they transfer me to some man, says public relations, 
I tell him the story. It's so easy for him to say no. So easy for him to say, I'm sorry. So easy for him to say, nothing I can do about it. And he says, if you write me a letter explaining what you told me, I'll send you book covers. Huh. So I do. But I still don't even believe that I'm going to get anything. Right. I think you're tossing it into the air. Well, a week later, I get a large manila envelope whose return address is Baltimore Orioles. I, I was so excited just to get the envelope. Right. Who cares what was in it? Exactly. <laughs> and there were the book covers. That's incredible. Now, that's the power of yes. I'm in 10th grade. That, that's, that makes an impression. Now, hold on. But wait, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. A year later, I go to the ball game with my best friend from first grade, Jonathan Finglass. And we get to, I think my mother dropped us off at the game, but my dad was going to meet us at the game and drive us home. Right. Well, we're like ballpark rugrats. We're walking all around and we accidentally exit the stadium. And the American League rule was no re-entry. We had... We put together our money, bought two bleacher tickets to get back in, and got back to our seats. Well, my dad arrives, and I tell him the story, and he's not pleased. It just didn't seem like right customer service. Now, remember, my dad was an orthodontist. He says, follow me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And we follow my dad, and we go down that familiar beige corridor that I had always seen from a distance with the big orange and black sign that says, to the Orioles offices. And we go into the office. Into the Orioles offices. That's it's pretty like, big when uh, you're 15 years old. Big deal. And there's the switchboard operator. And my dad goes, Mrs. Scala. She goes, Dr. Steinberg. Well, it turned out by coincidence that the switchboard operator was the mother of two of my dad's patients. Oh, geez, oh man. Okay. Small world. And, um, in fact, I think her husband had played. I think Dom Scala had been a New York Yankee, if I'm not mistaken. That's a, it's a, a tale I remember. Huh. Well, we tell her the story. She says, go into public relations, second door on the left. Well, we walk down the hall and go in, and there's a curly-haired lady with glasses. And she says, uh, hello, may I help you? And my father tells her the story. And she says... And what is it you would like me to do about it? And my father said, well, actually, I wasn't asking for anything. It's just that I'm an orthodontist. And if my patient ever had a bad experience, I would hope that they would tell me about it rather than just, you know, harbor that. Yeah, you'd rather know about it than not know exactly. about it. Exactly. He said, but I wasn't asking for anything. And she said, well, how about if you would be our guest at another ball game this year? Well, I was excited. I'm like, yes, take it, deal, done. Not only that, this is 1975. We were playing the Milwaukee Brewers on the date that we selected. And that meant that for the first time near the end of his career, I could see Hank Aaron play. He had been in the National League through 1974. He was already the home run king. And here I could see him. So I got to see Hank Aaron because the Orioles were kind enough to offer two tickets. It's incredible. But wait. There's more. There's more. So now I'm in senior year. I get the internship. And I show up with Chris Lambert, my friend, the one who had suggested to me. We both did the internship. And we walk in, and they say, second door on the left. 
go into public relations. Well, there's that lady. There's cool. Helen. Yeah, Helen. And out comes the public relations director for whom we're going to work, Bob Brown. He was the voice from 10th grade on that phone call. Oh. I wind up working for two people who say yes. You okay. were you were born in the from your very first moment in the yes business. And watch this. Now I am that intern. It's the summer of 76. I'm 17. I am that piece of gum on the bottom of the shoe of the lowest ranking person. Uh, he was a runner, a gopher, who would sit in the Orioles office by the switchboard waiting for the assignment to go run this here or run that there. And we're sitting there watching the game on a black and white monitor while over, oh, 20 feet away is the switchboard operator, Betty Scala. Mm -hmm. And in walks a gentleman, uh, I guess in his 30s, wearing a London fog kind of raincoat and kind of um, blondish, orangish hair. And we only see his back. And he says uh, to the switchboard operator, I'm very sorry to bother you, but um, I have a most unusual request. He said, um, my wife and I are here at the game tonight. And because we're playing the Detroit Tigers, and because my wife is from Michigan, she knows her family is listening on radio. And we wondered if we could get a message to the Tigers broadcaster, Ernie Harwell, he said, and I have to apologize as he takes out the message, mm -hmm. but all I had to write on was a pizza plate. And here is a white disc that formerly, formerly, For, had, formerly a, had a now pizza. eaten pizza <laughs> on it, and he's written this message. Now, I know in the middle of a game, I don't know anything, but I'm 17, I know that you can't go into the visiting broadcast booth in the middle of a ball game and ask Ernie Harwell to read a message. <laughs> That's on a used pizza plate. There's 20 reasons to say no. <laughs> right. Betty Scala looks across the office at Phil Shear, whom I'm, who mm -hmm. I am assisting, and me, and she looks at us and goes, we can do that. I can't promise that it will get used, but yeah, we'll we, get up there. we can get up there. Now, look at that yes. Look at that judgment. That's very, very pivotal. So Phil and I take the pizza plate, run up the ramps of Memorial Stadium, go into the press box, which is a thrill, wait till the third out of an inning. We go in, and there is a legendary Ernie broadcaster, Harwell. Ernie Harwell. Tell him the story, and he looks up and goes, I'll try to get it in there. Okay. Look at yes. Right. Now, to finish this whole sequence of stories, I then start college at the University of Maryland that fall. And I'm going to take the courses you need for dental school. Biology, chemistry, physics, calculus. I can take one elective. What a relief it will be, because I'm not that good at the sciences, to take, oh, maybe an English class. Well, a friend of mine said, oh, take this history class, the social and cultural history of early America. Now, I was not thinking that that would be what I would want to take. But my friend said, oh, it's a very dynamic speaker. The so, teacher's a very dynamic speaker. Yeah, the teacher. Got it, got it, yeah. So I go in, and it's an honors class. Ooh. And that meant it was only about 20 people. 
and the teacher says, look, because this is an honors class, I'd like to get to know each of you individually. So I'd like you each to make an appointment to come chat with me so I get to know you. So I show up at my appointed time. I'm a freshman in college at the University of Maryland. And I show up and I'm, I bound in with my smile. And um, Dr. Flack uh, says, um, so uh, tell me about yourself. Well, it takes about 30 seconds for me to say, well, I had an internship with the <laughs> Orioles. And he goes, um, ah, the Orioles. Well, I'm not really a fan of the Orioles living in Washington, D.C. Uh, he said, you know, yeah. he, he was still lamenting that the senators had moved. Uh, he said, but they did do something very nice for my family one night. He said, uh, uh, I took my wife to an Orioles game, and um, she's from Michigan. And we were playing the Detroit Tigers. And we had this silly notion <laughs> of perhaps we could get a message to Ernie Harwell. Now, I'm sitting there dying at what my new professor is telling me. He said, um, and I really felt bad because I, I went in and, and told them that all I had to write on was, and I interject, a pizza plate! <laughs> a pizza plate, I ate pepperoni! How did you know that? I said, I'm the one who ran it up! <laughs> well, incredible. let me tell you something. I took every class that Professor Jim Flack taught. I took social and cultural history of early America, social and cultural history of modern America, history of Washington, D.C. If he was going to teach it, I was going to take it because he had transformed from a professor to an actual person. Yeah, he was a human being. Exactly. That's shocking. And when I became president of the Paw Sox on November 5th of 2015. A couple years after. Now, we're talking about the yeah. fall of 76. Yeah. When I became president, the next day, I received an email from Pizza Plate to President. <laughs> Congratulations from that's, Dr. Flack. Oh, that's just like the greatest. That's a really cool story. Those are the moments that show you how powerful yes is. And you're always being evaluated as well. It's always. it's always it's always that. So one of the things I always have found very impressive about your career, and I think most people know, is how glorious and grand your ceremonies are uh, and have been for the Dodgers, with the Red Sox, here in Pawtucket. Tell the one of the ones that is most striking to me. I was living in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I was watching the Boston Marathon bombing unfold uh, every twist and turn. I didn't. I had it on in my office. I was glued to this because it was hometown to me, and. I remember watching the Red Sox game uh, soon after that and the ceremony that happened before the game when they were all wearing uh, Boston uh, on their jerseys at home. And you orchestrated that, and it was one of the more powerful ceremonies uh, of my life. And I just, can you tell us a little bit, uh, take, pull back the curtain a little bit, tell us a little bit about talking to David Ortiz and how that came about and... Uh, how you created that moment because it was powerful to me. I can only imagine what it was to you and the people at Fenway Park that day. It was a big one. It was a big one. That was uh, probably the most important ceremony that I was part of orchestrating. And I say part of because um, my, my partner in creating the, the uh, Boston ceremonies, Sarah McKenna, 
Uh, we had gone back to our days together with the San Diego Padres. Um, and there are dozens, dozens of people who uh, orchestrate this. It's like a Cecil B. DeMille production with a cast of thousands, <laughs> yeah. you know. For that one, you have to go back to the moment. And uh, actually, you have to go back to right before the moment. It was a gorgeous day in Boston, Monday, April 15th. Unseasonably beautiful, um, given that it was Boston. You can get any kind of weather. This was as good an April 15th as Boston has. And the Red Sox had been playing well already, or you know, the, just a few games into the season. And um, uh, they had a walk-off win. Um, they were playing well, despite the fact that David Ortiz was not on. He was actually here in Pawtucket. Thirteen uh, Red Sox at that time. That's right. He had had his season uh, ruined and ended in 2012 by an Achilles injury, and was now in Pawtucket on a rehab assignment. But the the Red Sox had had been playing well, and thank goodness on that day we did what we often do on Sundays and that was have kids run the bases. And I say thank goodness because that kept a lot of children and a lot of families at Fenway Park longer than they would have stayed uh, in the tradition of going from Fenway to watch the end of the marathon. And I liked to sit in the otherwise empty seating bowl when kids ran the bases uh, along the third base side because they would come off the field, and I, I like to read their faces and their parents' faces to see if they've had a good time. We pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, we'll let kids run the bases, but do they enjoy it? And they do, yeah. and they did. And the last child finished, and Jackie Dempsey, my ever loyal and faithful friend and assistant, um, was walking up the aisle, and you know, I joined her to go back up to the offices, and um, I looked at the clock on the pitcher's board and it said 2.47. I remember that time because that was the number of my elementary school. Cross-country elementary was school 2.47. So I looked and it's 2.47. And I said, you know, we had a walk-off win. Kids run the bases. Gorgeous blue skies. I said to Jackie, wow, what a great day. And she said, perfect. And it went through me when she said that. Because spiritually, mankind doesn't live in perfection. Right. We, we aspire. But there's always a balance. Maybe it's that Jewish culture. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. careful, you know, don't give it a kenahara. You know, you got to careful. And we go into the office and we walk down the hall. And by the time we've walked back to our office area, people are saying, look at the TV. And... While we were walking down the hall, the bomb had gone off, and then the second bomb had gone off. So we didn't hear it outside. I yeah. think we would have. And we're watching everything unfold. And at first, when the first bomb goes off, or even the first two, you just think, I, I thought, first of all, we didn't use the word bomb. There was an explosion. And you think that, um, you know, maybe a stove burst or, you know, something. Yeah, you think when the more second, logical. Yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of stores. You know, maybe something happened. And the second one goes, and the the broadcasters are saying, no, this is this is not that. And so you're watching it unfold, and your first thoughts are, who do I know that has gone over there? 
And I thought, oh God, Larry Lucchino goes over there. I called him and fortunately he had stayed up in his uh, office suite that overlooked the field. And I said, are you watching what goes on? He goes, no, what? And I told him what was going on. So you know, he turned it on. Well, in the minutes that followed, if you remember, there was then another story breaking and it was something wrong at the JFK library in Boston that was possibly a fire and possibly related, possibly an explosion. Well, that freaks you out because then you're introducing the possibility that there's a sequential attack on various Boston landmarks. You're in one. We're in one. We're in Fenway Park. Now, we had already gotten an email from our head of human resources, outstanding head of human resources, Amy Warius, just great. And it had said, look, if any of you have friends or loved ones, don't be afraid to, to leave because it's still a work day. You know, even though mm -hmm. we play at 11 o'clock on Marathon Monday, it's still a Monday. You're still working. But now when this story was breaking that something was wrong at the JFK library, my suspicion was if this is a sequential attack on Boston Landmarks, we're next. And so I remember just telling everyone in, in my area, leave, shut down, exit, because, well, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't know what's going you know on. Why. And I remember walking out, and there was already this, the, the talk that, that the explosions had been in or near or related to trash cans. And your eye starts noticing trash cans that you never would have thought twice about before, unless you were holding an empty paper cup. And suddenly, trash cans are sources of suspicion. And what's happening is you're being filled with new emotions. And all of us watched all of us who were not in the the smoke and the fray and the fire watched what transpired that night the next day tuesday april 16th we had a staff meeting that we would normally have on monday but it was marathon monday so we didn't have it yeah so we usually have it 11 o'clock on monday we had 11 o'clock on tuesday and Larry Lucchino is leading this staff meeting of department heads, and we're talking about what should we do to help? Should the Red Sox Foundation uh, you know, take action? You know, what should we do? And we pause because Larry's pulled away to take a phone call. And um, while we're sitting there chatting, I started doodling. And we knew that last evening and overnight, the phrase Boston Strong was becoming uh, used a lot. Our third baseman, Will Middlebrooks, wrote a beautiful tweet and did hashtag Boston Strong, not inventing the phrase, but pivotally popularizing mm -hmm. the phrase. Go back to Twitter, which we later did. That's when it spiked. And I thought... To myself, if you took our Boston B in red and wrote the word strong in white beneath it on a blue background, we'd be creating a second message saying be strong. Mm -hmm. 
a third message. The Boston Red Sox were saying, be strong. Larry came back in and um, told us that was Mayor Menino. May he rest in peace. And that he was creating the One Fund with Governor Patrick. And you know, we're all living this minute by minute in real time. And, and I said, you know, I showed my little drawing. Everybody in the staff meeting saw it. I said, um, the phrase Boston Strong is going to stick. It, it, it has legs. I said, if we created a logo that said Be Strong, we might be able to help raise funds for the One Fund. Sam Kennedy, my dear friend and colleague, now president of the Red Sox, is uh, sitting next to me. And he and I go to his office where he magnificently cuts through six months of traditional logo-making red tape in incessant phone calls to various people at Major League Baseball and properties and all yeah. all the things you have to do. All the red tape you gotta get through. It was like four hours that I'm sitting there watching Sam perform red tape surgery. <laughs> and we get the yes by, there's yes again, right. late Tuesday, so that Jonathan Galula, our colleague, has a big Be Strong disc on the Green Monster by Thursday night uh, the D'Angelo family, uh, a wonderful family who has Twins Enterprises, the yeah. 47 brand souvenir store, they're making T-shirts and caps with the proceeds all benefiting the one fund. What was it? $600,000 by the weekend, more than $2 million, I remember that year, for the one fund. You, you just watched all that come together. So we're filled with emotion. On Wednesday, amid all of this, Sarah McKenna and I start to... And Sarah's one of your right-hand people when creating she, she's ceremonies. She's my colleague, yeah. Um, we, we had done ceremonies together. Uh, she had worked for me in San Diego and Boston. Mm -hmm. I left to go to the Los Angeles Dodgers to work for the Commissioner of Baseball. When I came back, she was not my colleague. Um, and she is um, a great creative collaborator. I usually do the writing, and she is a world-class logistician. So we just partner. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, you want to get something written. And I wrote something Wednesday, and it wasn't very good. And Sarah and I are... are the team was away. The, the team, team was away. When you're when you're seeing this and you're just starting to jot down yeah. your notes, you know you've got the Celtics that are probably still playing. Yeah, uh, you've got the Bruins. Bruins that are still playing. Yeah. I felt like from afar, right? Because I was living in Scranton, that the Red Sox took this as your own, right? Like we are going to be the leaders uh, in trying to help a city get through a tragedy. That did wasn't you feel the thinking. The, did you feel the no. pressure of that? No. Or no, and that was not the thinking. For all of the ceremonies that I've ever had the privilege of participating in, I only am a fan. That is all I am. I feel like that's all I've ever been. And thank goodness I've never grown up. <laughs> um, when it comes to you know orchestrating opening days, I am 10 years old, whether I'm 30, 40, 50, or 60. And... When you move to a new city, 
you need to empathize with that city. You need to feel what that city's feeling. When we moved to San Diego, I loved learning the rhythms of that beautiful city. When you move to Los Angeles, you know, it's a whole new dynamic. Mm -hmm. But in Boston, I didn't need to empathize with Boston. I was feeling the emotions. Right. These emotions were saturating me. So I drafted something Wednesday, and Sarah and I have a humorous relationship of candor. And she read it, she said, that's not good. I said, yeah, I know, it's <laughs> not. She was right. Yeah. Thursday night, there's a, an uneasiness. There's a sense of tension in my soul around 6.30, I remember. And I remember around 9.30, a calm comes over me. 9.30 at night, Thursday night, team's on the road, they're in Cleveland. And I start writing. And it just pours out. Just pours out like you were pouring a bucket of water. Sarah is in her office researching the, the stories that have happened. We both knew that come Friday night when the team is home, if we would have uh, some of the, the people who embody what has happened, maybe someone who got injured but is already treated and released, uh, the doctors, the nurses, um, the law enforcement uh, community, uh, Sarah said, and the marathoners themselves. So she's looking at stories, looking up stories, and I'm writing. And Thursday night, it really started to flow. And just around 10 o'clock, after, a little after 10, she called me. She only sits, you know, a few offices away, but, you know, she calls yeah. me. She says, you watching TV? I said, no, why? She goes, um, a police officer just got killed at MIT. I thought, wow, what a week. No concept that, that they're related. That were related. No concept. But we are just filled with the emotion. And the emotions were sorrow and sadness and resolve and resilience. And where she finds the story of, um, I think it was a carpenter or a house repair, uh, someone from Lynn um, who had been just, you know, an ordinary, you know, yeah. working person who had taken off his belt, turned it into a tourniquet, uh, had saved, you know, a life. We see the stories, of course, of, of, of Carlos Arredondo, the man with the cowboy hat, and Jeff right. Bowman. Um, and we're, you know, she says, look at this story. You know, wow, that, yeah, the, this fellow from Lynn, he, he'd be great, you know. Um, and so I start writing it into the server. She said, I haven't reached out to him. I said, you'll get him. You know, <laughs> 20 minutes later, she says, I, got I think he, this one may have been a firefighter. may have been a firefighter from Lynn. Um, and then there's another story. Um, and I, I should remember. Oh, so, and someone from Lowell. Because yeah. I remember one was from Lowell and one was from Lynn. So when we gave them gifts, we gave them, um, one was a Fred Lynn jersey. Huh. And one and was a Michael, was a Michael Lowell jersey. jersey. I remember that, yeah. So I think it was a firefighter from Lowell and a, and like a carpenter or a roofer from Lynn. You know, people who embodied the concept of running into the fire. Right. 
and we're writing the ceremony and it's heavy because we're pouring our emotions. Meanwhile, outside our offices, which are at Fenway Park, right, right. on Brookline Avenue, police cars are just flying by. Some with their lights on, some are unmarked. Now we're right down the street from what's called the Longwood Medical Center. It's where so many of the Boston hospitals are located. Mm -hmm. uh, Dana-Farber, where the Jimmy Fund is, is there. Jocelyn Diabetes, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. They're you know, all there. Uh, Boston Children's Hospital, Brigham and Women's. And all we know is police are flying. We don't know that they're going to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center where one of the brothers has been transported after, you know, and during a shootout mm -hmm. that took place in Watertown. We don't know that. We just know that all hell's breaking loose, you know? And she and I work on the ceremony till, I remember, 1.04 in the morning. And we knew that we had something. And I have a little one-bedroom apartment just a few blocks away from Fenway, so it's an easy walk. You can walk it at 1 in the morning, you can walk it at 4 in the morning. And Sarah and I walked out. She was going to drive home. And um, I walk that walk all the time. And a taxi pulls up and said, want a ride? I said, you bet. And like the old Harry Chapin song, Taxi, I gave him $20 for a two fifty fare. <laughs> because there was something uneasy in the air again. There was this, the, you know, why were these police flying all, all over our Fenway Park neighborhood? So you're, you're in it. You're in it. You're in it. You don't have to empathize, sympathize, or imagine. You're feeling it. And uh, stayed up and watched uh, the coverage till about 3.30 in the morning. I was on the phone with a, a dear friend from San Diego, uh, Claudia Valenzuela, who we'd worked with at the Padres. She's watching it in San Diego. Yeah, crazy. I'm watching it out my window. <laughs> and um, I remember an aide to Mayor Menino called me about 3 in the morning. Um and uh, got up at 8.30 to learn that we must shelter in place. No one can go out. We were all, the whole city was asked to stay put, stay in. And this meant, among other things, that our game that night might not happen. Um, but we didn't know for sure. Yeah. It was another gorgeous day. Surprisingly warm, gorgeous blue sky. And we're all on email and we're chatting by phone too. But Fenway Park is our home. And I think about 1.30, I may, I may be violating civic uh, code at this point. I only lived like three blocks away. I go and I walk up the street. And it was the eeriest scene. It was a blizzard without the snow. It was a Hollywood set. It was all the storefronts closed, but no life. No cars, no people, no life. It was a really eerie scene. And um, I got to Fenway and felt home because I was at Fenway. And others started gravitating there too. And we got the word from, uh, you know, Larry Lucchino, John Henry, Tom Werner were all in close touch. And they were all in close touch with Mayor Menino that we would postpone our game. So there would be no Friday night game. 
David Ortiz, by the way, is still playing for Pawtucket. And at 6 o'clock, we're told you can go resume your lives while they're still looking for a fugitive, looking for the brother. And Larry called me, Larry Lucchino called, and I'm at Fenway, and, and um, I said, this isn't good. I said, we're going about our lives. That means 35,000 people are coming over for tomorrow afternoon's game, and there's a killer on the loose. You don't want a killer on the loose when you're having 35,000 people come to Fenway Park. He goes, I know, I know, I know. I'll just keep working. Just keep uh, working. That's the most Larry thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, you'll just keep working. Work is our therapy. Yeah. It really is. Work is our oxygen. Well, about 7 o'clock, because people were mobile, thank goodness, uh, the, the killer was found in that boat. Yeah. And now you're filled with a third emotion. Yes, sorrow and sadness and resolve and resilience, but now triumph. Yeah, right. Except it doesn't end with triumph. Your heart still goes out to the bereaved and the injured. And what I found was that we were on a carousel, a, a, a merry-go-round of, uh, that was triangulated. It was sorrow and sadness, resolve and resilience, triumph, but sorrow and sadness, but resolve and resilience, and triumph, but sorrow and sadness. And, and I was, my emotions were spinning on this carousel. And they influence what you're going to write, because you're now going to rewrite. Wait a minute, we were going to recognize law enforcement anyway, but now law enforcement becomes the big finish. Yeah. We owe gratitude that has been expressed rarely, if ever, to the people who put their lives on the line in law enforcement. Not never, but you know, rarely, rarely. And so we're rewriting. I'm you know, rewriting. Others are coming in and contributing. Uh, Sarah is, of course, right in the thick mm -hmm. of, it, of it all. And we are rewriting, recrafting all the way till five after midnight. Now, one of the things you have to know about Larry Lucchino, he is a great partner. He is a great collaborator. He is a great writing partner. You know, go back to the beginning of the story. He's a grammarian. He's a great writer. May have the best diction of anybody I've ever worked with. So I send him, I email him the script of this ceremony um, because I like to. Not because mm -hmm. he's my boss, but because he's the best writing partner. Yeah, you guys go back I've and forth really well. Yeah. And, um, and I went home. Came in the next morning, Saturday. We're going to play this afternoon against the Kansas City Royals. And there was something bothering me about the ceremony. It was a good ceremony. I knew it was filled with emotion. But how do you go from a ceremony so heavy, so somber, and then do something as trivial and frivolous as playing, as playing a, a baseball game? You need an elbow that of some my, sort. That was my phrase. That was my phrase to the, my colleagues seated in my office. We need an elbow. We need something to transition from that to playing ball. How about if David Ortiz would speak? 
Well, some of the comments were pretty humorous at that point. <laughs> Charles, if David, if you ask David Ortiz to speak, you don't know what you're going to get. You're li- well, they, they do. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what you're going to get. They, you're, you're liable to hear it. I'm fine. I said, really? Oh, definitely. Now, unbeknownst to me, down the hall, Larry Lucchino had just talked to a friend of his who said, Larry, you should have a player speak. And Larry thought, David Ortiz. I did not know that. No kidding. He had that. I had that. Sarah McKenna says, oh, David speaks. He's definitely dropping him out. Sarah walks down the hall and sees Larry and says, Charles is thinking that David Ortiz should speak. I goes, yeah, I was thinking that, that too. She goes, but I think if he speaks, you know, he might drop a bomb. Larry goes, good, that's fine. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so um, it was therefore the role of, of one of our folks, in, in two of our folks in community relations, uh, Pam Ken, who is, is just wonderful, and Sarah Narachi, Sarah Stevenson Narachi. These are just great, great people to go and approach David. Now, I wrote up some lines. Not that line, but I wrote up some lines. But let me tell you something. For no one is it easy to stand on a field with a microphone and talk. If English is your first language, it's not easy. If you're an accomplished orator, it's not easy. When English is your second language, it's even harder. So you don't want to suggest too much. And I wrote, uh, you see this jersey we wear today? It doesn't say Red Sox. It says Boston. And there was a story about how we did that. Um, Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mayor. Let's play ball. Something like that. Well, I I think Sarah McKenna talked to David Ortiz. Sarah Narachi talked to David Ortiz. Pam may have talked to David Ortiz. And I think he, I'm told he was reluctant first. Yeah. But was told he could speak from the heart. And um, he did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, did. you'll hear that first line. You see this jersey we wear today. It doesn't say Red Sox. It says Boston. Now, I remember writing, I think, thank you, Governor. Thank you, Mayor. He went further. Thank you, Governor Patrick. Thank you, Mayor Menino. And thank you, law enforcement, for the great job you guys did this week. That, that's him. Right. Then he delivers his famous line, the unforgettable, unrepeatable line. Well, you can. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that's all. that was all David. <laughs> no one wrote that. <laughs> no one wrote that. But no one wrote the next line either, and it's one of the most interesting lines. And nobody's going to dictate our freedom. That's a pretty substantial sentence by someone speaking in a second language. Think about that. You know, this is our blanket city. Yeah. And nobody's going to dictate our freedom. That was all him. Stay strong. Wow. With his fist in the air. One of the most uh, iconic photos of all time. That photo's everywhere. It was everywhere that day. It was everywhere after that. When you think the that day, I think of the Ortiz, you know, kind of fist in the air. Now, two two postscripts to that. What echoes to me about that iconic photo is in a city that in years past was controversial 
for its race relations. Mm -hmm. Here was a man with dark skin, with his fist clenched, arm in the air, just as the two Olympians had been in 1968, mm -hmm. where their fists represented a very different time in America. Right. Here at Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts, David Ortiz was the Statue of Unity. Unbelievable. Really interesting. Really interesting. Now, that was the the um, the other part of the story that that you know people talk about but don't always know about is this. On that Saturday morning, I'm rehearsing the script with our PA announcer, a great guy, Henry Mahegan, history teacher. He had worked in our office uh, in the media relations department, and he has that great. Yeah, you know exactly voice. the yeah. sound of Fenway Park. And we're rehearsing it because he knows this is really significant. He wants to make sure his inflection points are right. These aren't words. These are lyrics. When you're going to say, and we will be back on Boylston, you're going to get an emotional reaction from the fans. And those are the emotions we feel when we're writing. We are fans. That's all we are. Therefore, we can imagine how we'll feel when we hear those words. And we rehearsed that for a while. He was yeah. so conscientious. He's very particular about that. So much so that Sarah McKenna bursts in and in her humorous and sometimes profane way says, can I have my blank and PA announcer? The, the ceremony is about to, to start in a half hour. I said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're good. And Henry goes... And I freshen up, and I'm about to walk down to the field for the one o'clock ceremony. And two colleagues come walking by me with a sense of urgency and a yellow post-it. Charles, Neil Diamond just called. He's in Boston. Um, you need to call him back. Like, he's, he's coming. Like, what? Neil Diamond. And, and so I have a yellow post-it with Neil Diamond's name, his wife's name, and their phone number. And I really wasn't phased. I figured, oh, John Henry or Tom Werner or Larry Lucchino must have invited them. And that thought had crossed my mind Thursday or Friday, but this is no time for pomp and circumstance. This is not a theatrical production. This is a somber civic convocation. So at, I later looked at, checked this on my phone, at 12.43 p.m., 17 minutes before the show is about to begin. Yes. On Saturday, April 20th, I called the number, got Neil Diamond's wife. I said, hi, I'm Charles Steinberg from the Boston Red Sox. Um, I said, uh, where are you? They said, we're at Logan. I said, do you need a ride? They said, no, we have a car. Um, and so I told them to come to the player's parking lot and uh, had another fellow from media relations uh, go greet him, Peter Cohano, because I had to go down to the field for the ceremony. And I really was kind of matter-of-fact about it because I just figured one of our owners had invited him. I stopped by Larry's office um, before going down to the field. I said, did you invite Neil Diamond? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Never, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. No. Must have been Tom Warner. So I go down to the field and we do the ceremony. And it is 
the the emotions in that park that day, everybody who was there knows. It, it was so thick. Yeah, you could cut it with a knife. It was. It was that way. And we were all so one. I mean, I, I, I can see Dustin Pedroia standing there. I can see um, a nurse standing there. I mean, we were all melded into one. And, um, you know, Sarah had gotten the Hoyts of, of, of marathon fame, the father who had uh, pushed uh, the wheelchair of his son for, what, over 30 years. I mean, it was just, That's it was... Heavy and thick was. and emotional. But they were our emotions because we had experienced all this. This was not a they. This was not trying to feel what a city feels like. We were that. Right. And um, when the, and David delivered his famous speech. And when it was over, I walked over and saw John Henry, Linda Pizzuti Henry, uh, Tom Werner, and, you know, we chatted, and they were, they were very uh, moved, as all of us, I think, were. I said to Tom, um, did you invite Neil Diamond? Neil Diamond? Where is he? Said, He's up in your suite. Yeah. He said, no, let's go. Well, we go up to uh, Tom's suite, John Tom, my suite, and there's Neil Diamond and his wife. Now, I had met him a couple years before with his assistant, and he had been told that, you know, I was one who was behind playing Sweet Caroline on a daily basis. And I had met his assistant, uh, and she had said to me then, um, you created a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I look, here's Neil Diamond and his wife. I looked at her, I said, we've met. She said, yes, we have. I said, you were Neil's assistant several years ago. She goes, that's right. I said, you said I created a monster. She said, I did, and you did. <laughs> I did, and you did. So... It broke the, not that there was any ice, no, no, but it, it gave us a conversation point. And we chatted, you know, I said, yeah, this was a complete surprise. No one had invited him, and we were thrilled that he had come. I said, well, do you want to sing? He said, well, I just really wanted to be here. He had recognized how throughout the country, Sweet Caroline had become a language. It had become a mode of tribute at other ballparks, including Yankee Stadium. Yeah, the New York Yankees and the fans of Yankee Stadium had sung "Sweet Caroline" in tribute to their brother in Boston, and it was really moving to all of us and to him so much so. I said, um, "Are you still recording?" He goes, "Yeah, I was in the studio yesterday." I said, "What? New York?" He goes, "No, L.A." I said, "You were in L.A. yesterday?" He goes, "No, I was in L.A. today." He flew that day. That day. Wow. Took. The a plane at 4.30 in the morning, landed at 9.30, which is 12.30. That's when he called the switchboard. And here he was experiencing this. Now, there was a touch of irony. Because Neil Diamond had performed at Fenway Park. He had sung Sweet Caroline. But the one time we wanted him and couldn't get him was for the 100th anniversary of Fenway Park. He wasn't available that day. We did have Caroline Kennedy, yeah, so you had know, a who was related to the the inspiration for the, the name of the song, but we couldn't get Neil Diamond. Well, near the end of this day, he, he goes out to sing, and he sings without a monitor. So he's 
singing to the sound system's presentation of his own song from, what, 50 yeah. years before. And that's why you hear a delay, which was beautifully authentic. Yeah, right. You know, uh, and just a moment. It was just, it was just something. It was amazing. And um, uh, after that, Daniel Nava hits a three-run homer oh. to overcome a deficit and gives a four-to-three lead, which turns into a win. It was just, it was just, just divine orchestration. And we're back up in the suite, and um, his wife says this was a wonderful way for us to celebrate our anniversary. I said, your anniversary. I said, yeah. I said, today's your wedding anniversary? And she said, yeah, please. This would, We could not have been more saturated with love than we feel today. I'm like, that's unbelievable. Crazy. You flew here on your wedding anniversary. I said, what anniversary is it? She says, our first. First? Now, what date was this? Is it April 20th, 2013? Yes. The 100th anniversary of Fenway was, was April 20th, 2012. <laughs> The reason Neil Diamond couldn't sing Sweet Caroline at Fenway on its 100th birthday was that he was getting married that day. <laughs> a, a, a good excuse a to miss. Good a excuse. good excuse And ironically, on Fenway's 101st birthday, he chose, he and his wife chose, yeah. to fly from Los Angeles, sing the song that was therapeutic and so helpful in the healing of a city. It's incredible. That's incredible. Charles, we have you have so many stories. We're going to have to do a I don't know how many volumes of uh story time with uh with Dr. Charles, but we're going to have to do that. There but are more. There are more and I, I I think we can't wait to hear them. So, one of the things I want to I want to end with is we call this front office features and the part that I was wondering is could you name five front office colleagues of yours that had the most impact on you and in just a quick synopsis why are those five well you start with your mentors you'd be nowhere without them right uh, bob brown took a chance on me answered the phone at age 17 yes and was a wonderful warm strict defender of high standards um, boss, he was he was the best public relations director baseball had for an era. In fact, when the Bob Fischel Robert O. Fischel Award was created um, to honor the great New York Yankees uh, public relations director who became president of the American League, uh, a PR director of the American League, um, the uh, vice president, uh, Bob Brown was the first person other than Bob Fischel to win wow. the award. So I, I could never say enough. And his son, Scotty Brown, and um, and other children, you know. Uh, Scotty Scott's Brown's a long-time yeah, minor league guy. Been in baseball forever. Well, he's been in baseball since, I, I think I can picture him being maybe nine years old, running, hustling <laughs> in, around the Orioles' offices, um, sliding on the tile floor. That's great. Um, so Bob Brown, you know, you, you, you start with, um, uh, th there's a special place in my heart that no one can touch for Larry Lucchino because he gave me opportunities that have been the most impactful in my life. Remember, I kept thinking I was going to be a dentist and the backing he gave for me to be the head of, to create Orioles Productions and then to create a customer service area and then, then to come to San Diego with him and 
expand my horizons in every way. And then to come to Boston and, you know, do all that we did um, and, and are, are still doing in New England. Um, yeah, I, I just don't know how you say enough. Uh, there were other um, bosses and mentors mm -hmm. in there. Bob Aylward absolutely taught me uh, so much. Uh, Tom Daffron, uh, not a name that everyone knows. He had come from Capitol Hill, but boy, did he teach personnel management beautifully. Um, so th those are the first ones. Uh, I will tell you that uh, while my time at the Los Angeles Dodgers was filled uh, with Dodger controversy, and the controversy got much worse uh, after I left, uh, with Frank and Jamie McCourt, both of them were great to me. Yeah. They both treated me great. Uh, Jamie McCourt uh, was a bright, brilliant person whose instincts for what the fan wanted uh, were, were great. Frank McCourt had a vision uh, that it, I think is still in place. Uh, so, I, you know, they, you know, it, it was an interesting story, of course, but of course. They, were, they were both good to me. And um, uh, Commissioner Seelig is also one who stands, you know, I'd say alone with Larry Lucchino because working in his office in Milwaukee directly with him, directly for him, um, for uh, all or parts of five years, taught me so much. We're going to have to get into your time with uh, Commissioner Seelig at a... Uh volume whatever number we get to but we def i would definitely want to dive into uh let me leave you with this bottom line about him i love it a human being a wonderful kind funny human being who understands that it is a game played by human beings for human beings and um I don't think I've ever met a better baseball fan than Bud Seelig. Better baseball fan. You can try, but if you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him on what was in the morning box scores, good luck. Huh. He knows everything about what's going on with all 30 teams. Uh, just a great fan, but that kind as much as a great fan and really a human being who the public didn't get to know when he was commissioner. Milwaukee knows. Yeah. Milwaukee and Wisconsin know. But America did not get to see beyond the curtain of the commissioner. And I hope with his new book, um, which I was privileged to, to help him uh, with somewhat, um, but that he wrote with Phil Rogers, um, I hope you'll see the great spark of human spirit that teaches you why baseball accomplishes what it does at the rate that it travels. It's Crazy. a debatable rate. Yeah. But if you read it, you'll understand so much about the human dynamics of a game that appears to be bats and balls and grass and dirt and sun and sky. It is, but it's all and always about the people. That's fantastic. Uh, Dr. Charles, thank you so very much uh, for 
being a guest on Front Office Features. I really do appreciate it. I have a feeling that in the future there's going to be more, and it could be a regular segment here, is uh, story time with uh, Dr. Charles. I think your stories are fantastic. Uh, they teach so much within them. Uh, I am appreciative to be able to learn from them, uh, work with you about how to implement them on a, on a daily basis, uh, and very appreciative of it. So, uh, Dr. Charles, thank you so very much for being here. Well, thank you. Imagine what my students at Emerson College, <laughs> the director of sports communication, go through in those three-hour classes. They get a lot of stories. They get a lot thank of stories. They get a lot again. of stories. Thank you very much. Thank you.